Hi, and welcome to the Paramedics for Children podcast. My name is Daniel Vandenberg, and I'm a board member for Paramedics for Children. This is an international nonprofit providing medical care, education, and disaster relief. Together with Sarah, my fellow board member and wife, I recorded a series of conversations with Roger Harrison, who founded the organization in 1997 and continues to run it from Copanrinas in Honduras. In these podcasts, Roger tells us about building and operating the charity from Hacienda La Esperanza, his home and headquarters of Paramedics for Children. In this episode, we talk about how Roger started Paramedics for Children in the aftermath of Hurricane Mitch in 1998. You'll learn about the early days, renting airplanes, dumping goods on a runway, and ill-informed aid workers with good intentions. If you want to learn more about us and support the work that we do, please visit paramedicsforchildren.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That was during Hurricane Mitch. Uh, Hurricane Mitch, I think, struck in October of 1998. And uh, it was probably one of the most devastating hurricanes to hit the area. You know, uh, people, of course, now have forgotten about it, including the Hondurans, who were definitely not prepared for another disaster like Hurricane Mitch. But that's actually how we got formed. I remember we had on our website, you know, formed in a hurricane. You know, we were born in a hurricane. Um, and uh, it started with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it started with uh, me renting a, what they call a Martin Convair, Convair 440. Or no, maybe a 404. Mm-hmm. Where, did you, where did you rent that? <laughs> uh, we rented it out of Miami, and it was an old cargo plane, uh, 1951 Martin 404 pretty sure that's what it was and we flew in we could fly in like uh, 12 or 13,000 pounds of cargo and what we had back in those days is everybody wanted to help Honduras because you know it was the biggest disaster at the time and Honduras appeared on the the you know particularly in the United States the radar mm-hmm. and the local newspapers had found me because I had been coming down here and they knew about me and so they said, wow, you know, you're, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I, don't, I just found out about it myself. I guess we're going to, you know, have, try to help Honduras. And um, that was how we formed Paramedics for Children. It actually got formed in an interview. Uh, I was talking to a woman, a newswoman, who said, now, you people are here. You're helping all these poor Honduran people. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, we are. And uh, and now, are, who are you helping? Are you helping the children? I said, yes, ma'am, we are. Oh, wonderful. What's the name of your organization? I said, uh, we don't have a name yet, ma'am. We're just a bunch of paramedics. And she said, well, you have to have a name. What's the name of your organization? And I said, I don't, I don't, we haven't gotten around to that because we weren't prepared to have this happen. But uh, I don't know. She's, and she said, well, you're paramedics, aren't you? And you're helping children. I said, yes. Then you're paramedics for children. I said, that sounds good. And everybody else turned around and said, yeah, uh, yeah, man, that's what we are. We're paramedics for children. Some other paramedics and some retarded firefighters who were dear friends of mine were all going like, yeah, yeah, I'll drink to that. Nice. (laughs) And so that's how we got our name. Swear to God. So um, we're down there in, uh, uh, you know, at the the television station and you're getting, you walk outside and we're getting a lot of publicity and what are you going to do? 
How are you going to do it? How are you going to help the people? And well, you know, uh, I knew enough that I'd already found out from being here that the first thing that would be knocked out was the infrastructure, which meant no roads, no bridges, no way to get food inside the center of the country. And I knew that everybody, every church, every, you know, do-gooding organization were sending uh, tremendous amounts of uh, containers, these 40-foot containers loaded with bleach and water. I mean, water is probably one of the most inefficient things you can ship unless you're shipping into the Sahara. In Honduras, it was enough rain coming down. (laughs) There was like 50 inches of rain a week still after the hurricane. So everything was flooded. So I can remember, you know, getting there, holding up bottles of water and people just looking at us like, really? Really? So um, we, uh, we realized, I said, well, what we need to do is we need to lease an airplane and fly a cargo plane in so that we can get inland. We can land in La Ceiba. We can land, uh, you know, we can land in um, uh, Tegucigalpa, which was really hurting. Uh, we could we could land in Comiagua and several other different areas where it was very, very bad. So that's what we did. And one of the most interesting stories about that was we had a big trucking company out of Charlotte, North Carolina, that said, we'll, like, we'll give you the big 18-wheeler and a driver. And every, every single supermarket loaded us up with all kinds of crazy things that, you know, at the first, we didn't know what we really needed to do. I can remember we had, like, pallets of uh, Pop-Tarts. Uh, we had uh, we had this little warehouse we'd rented, and then finally somebody just donated us one. And I can remember looking at a pallet of hair of hair dryers. Somebody had sent us like six hundred hair dryers. The volunteers said, "Look, these are brand new hair dryers." I'm going like, uh, "Yeah, but people don't have electricity." So we were, we spent a lot of our time in the beginning sorting out what we could use and having to give away to other charities what we couldn't use. As we loaded our trucks, we then drove and we had leased this uh, old cargo plane. And I'm sorry, the name of the cargo plane was a Convair 440, not a Martin 404. They're two totally two different airplanes. Um, but it was it was a 1951. I remember reading the manual on it, and it was like 1951. Used to belong to the U.S. Air Force. And uh, we would, <laughs> so, but we but we were, we used this old cargo plane. I've even got pictures of it. I can show you guys. It's an incredible old plane. I would actually rode down with the truck driver, and but we our first uh, the first uh, uh, emergency aid we took in there was all kinds of really stupid stuff that we didn't understand. You know, we didn't know what people needed in Honduras at that time. I had said I want beans and rice, beans and rice, dry goods, but nobody would give it to you. And in the beginning, when you're forming a charity, you don't want to uh, offend anybody, so you start taking all this. Mm-hmm. useless stuff in that you really don't need where in retrospect if i could go back i would say hey guys we don't need that and uh so we our, our poor little warehouse was completely packed with crap we couldn't take but we got a good load down and brought the first load in. it was fifteen thousand pounds and it cost six thousand dollars to lease the plane to fly it down and we could carry in 15 maybe in a push twenty thousand pounds uh, these guys that we rented the plane from were true pirates. I mean, they were pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, they had an old, I don't know, Daniel, if you know this, you being a hiker, but do you remember the first GPS units you had? Yeah. That looked like a cell phone? 
Yeah, and they were really basic. Well, that's what we were, what we were using to navigate with down to Honduras from uh, Key West, Florida. So, um, so the, the uh, cargo plane was in Key West, Florida. Or? It wasn't. It, it was out of Key West. Yeah, they were flying at the time. I think they've gone broke. I remember their name, but I probably better not say their name because they probably wanted uh. for some <laughs> of the things they did. But the drill over about a five or six week period of time was get a truck, take it down, load the plane, fly down, and drop it off in Tegucigalpa to mm -hmm. all sorts of church groups and people like that. And they were very, very happy to get it because they were getting nothing. Remember, nothing's coming from the coast inward because mm -hmm. all the roads are destroyed. So people in Tegucigalpa were really in bad shape. And suddenly one day I'm walking down, you know, in the town and I'm looking I actually, I was walking in the town of, uh, of La Ceiba, where the ports are. And, uh, and there was more food on the market than you could believe. And all of it said ASID, not for sale, but they're selling it like crazy in the food marks. But beans were only about two lempiras a pound. And I suddenly realized, I'm sitting there looking at this, and I'm going like, wow, I can get more cargo for $6,000 I used to rent the plane to fly it down here, I could get planes out of here to fly it to the inland, take the $6,000 and buy the black market beans and rice. And it was available. I mean, it was the black market, no doubt about it. But it was going nowhere. It was rotting on the, on the docks. And, of course, like all hurricanes and things like that, people, well-meaning people, you know, get so much stuff in there, you can't move for all the stuff you have. So I started taking the $6,000 and buying the beans and rice in La Ceiba. And then in the plane, I said, if we're just going to base the plane out of La Ceiba, this big cargo plane. I said, I'll, you know, we'll fly down one $6,000 load. You guys park and how much you want for daily rate to be on standby. And I'm going to take the money for, for $6,000. I could, I could put together like seven or eight, you know, short flights, which only lasted 20 minutes out and 20 minutes back. And so we found ourselves in this old cargo plane, and we had a, I had a rope tied around my waist. And in a cargo plane, you know, the floors had these little wheel things in them so you can push stuff easy. And we just, you know, we were sitting there, how do we get rid of all this beans and rice? And we had all these people that needed it. So we just would fly down low over the airfield and just kick this stuff out of the uh, back of the plane. And, and I was tied to a rope, and, and what they do, they push it in front of me, and then I would kick off 50 or 100-pound bags of rice and beans that, of course, would explode when they hit the ground. But that was okay because people just gather them up. And many times we'd come to a place where we were going to drop it, and Mejia, this crazy, crazy son of a bitch who we hired to fly, he was hysterical. I mean, he was really one of the funniest people I ever met. He would scream out the back of the plane, Roger, Rogelio, get ready, we're going to dump it. Out, kick it out, kick it out, kick it out. We'd be kicking it out. We couldn't see. And we're coming down over a field at about 160 miles an hour because we want to keep up our flight speed. But we're probably only 200 feet in the air. And at the last minute, Mejia would throw on the flaps and drop the gear on the airplane to slow us down to about 115 miles an hour, 120. Because, you know, it, when you throw something out of an airplane at 200 miles an hour, it just smashes and yeah, beats yeah, yeah. You're trying to, and we found ways we'd put stuff around it, you know, wrap tape around it so we'd kind of stay together. And we would have to fly over these fields, and, and Mejia would say, wait, 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 we have cows, we have, we have people, we have to get off, if they get off, you know, and they're, they're talking on their CB radio to these mm. morons down below. 
get the people off the field, get the people off the field. And we were throwing this beans and rice out and people were so hungry. They come running out to see if they could catch the bag. You're talking a 50 pound bag of rice traveling at 137 That's miles an hour healthy, no. laterally and falling from a distance of about 200 feet. It, it could kill people. It, we actually killed a couple cows. <laughs> <laughs> Barbecue. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how we got started. It was so crazy during Hurricane Mitch. It was so wide open. You could you could be down there, and you just didn't know who you were going to meet, who you were going to talk to. The place was filled with spooks, from all kinds of FBI, CIA, because mm-hmm. it was an opportunity for them to get in and run rampant throughout the country. And, you know, you see these guys that look like military guys. They say, oh, we're, we're here to help the poor people. Well, is that a forty-five I see in your back pocket? Oh no, 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 no! You know, like, yeah, it was it was a zoo. It was a zoo. Saw the same thing when we went to Indonesia. The the government gets in there and tries to get as many people in there as they can. And this was right after the Iran Contra, you know, thing back mm-hmm. in the. Oh, I think that ended around ninety-two. So we were pretty, um, you know, pretty much in the in the middle of that, not intentionally, but. You know, Honduras is always political. It's mm-hmm. always, you know, uh, things are going on that you just don't ask about, you know. In La Ceiba, for example, we dropped off a load of supplies in La Ceiba. And a local news crew we had brought from North Carolina. We brought it from Charlotte. I think it was Channel 9 News. And we brought this Argentinian uh, cameraman with me. And he, they wanted to document it. They did a full big series on paramedics for children, a North Carolina charity going into Honduras. They, they won awards on that, but we were walking down the riverbed of the main river there, uh, right on the coast, uh, which had been hit badly because it, it the river originally was only about <clears throat> maybe as wide as, as the river you see in front of the Hacienda here. And after the flood, it was almost a mile wide in places. You could walk down through the riverbed and you would see cows and horses and all kinds of people's bodies. They were burning bodies down by the river. They had to do something quickly. This was about a week after, maybe a week after the hurricane actually hit. And one of the strangest sights I ever saw in my life, I never will forget this. I was walking down the river with the camera guy and uh, I can't think of his name. But he's an Argentinian guy. But anyway, he's he's with me. And we are filming like crazy. You know, we're just getting all this terrible stuff. And he was actually getting ill. He said, I can't show this stuff. I, you know, I'm filming it. But I just, yeah. There were bodies everywhere, you know, and little kids and people. And, and the uh, volunteers and the police were trying to get their bodies up and get them buried. And they were burning them right on the, right on the mm-hmm. riverbed there. And I'm sitting there. It looked like something out of the movie Apocalypse Now or something. You know, the, and uh, I'm in the middle of this, and suddenly I see this really nice-looking four-wheel drive. Uh, looked like a Toyota, maybe, <clears throat> with a cab and a, and a back on it. And in the back of that were three uh, people. One was this beautiful blonde. I mean, she could have been a movie star. And they had a speaker, and they had bags of dog food. And they were going, they were saying in Spanish, if you have a dog or if, you, if you've lost your dog, we have food for your dogs. We have food for dogs. And I couldn't believe this. I mean, they were some of the first people in. 
<clears throat> and so we, we stopped him and we said, I said, wow, <clears throat> excuse me. I said, we got some kids over here that, that are, you know, need antibiotic, have antibiotics. Oh, yes, we have antibiotics. We have a vet. You have a sick dog. I said, no, but we have sick kids. <laughs> and she said, no, we're not here to help the children. We're here to feed the dogs and the animals. And we're having a hard time. We can't find them. They, and I said, and so this, this Argentinian guy said, lady, you won't find no dogs because they've already eaten the damn dogs. I'm just sitting there looking at him and I'm looking at this woman. I'm going like, is this real? I'm hearing this conversation and they get into a debate. I said, well, your job is to help the people. Our job is to save the animals. And I'm saying, guys, guys, you know, don't fight. Just let me let me just ask you a question. I said, where, I said, where are you guys staying in Saba? And they said the same hotel where we were staying. I said, look, we're we're doing work you're doing. We can keep doing what you do. But if you've got any extra antibiotics, we can probably use them because the same antibiotics you use for dogs, we use on people. And uh, this this Argentine guy, I was, I was holding him now by the back of his shirt. Uh, he was uh, typical. A, a good, high-quality, hot-headed Latina. And she said, well, we can't give those, those for animals uh, because we might get in trouble. And besides, they're for the animals. They're not for the people. <laughs> this guy, what was his name? Hector. Hector was his name. He, it was like downset heel Hector. You're trying to feed these animals. These animals have all run away. They're eating the animals. You need to feed the people. You need to... And she said, well, we are we are giving out dog food to a lot of people here. And about that time, up walks this little kid asking for dog food. And she gives him a big, you know, 50-pound sack, and the little boy walks away with it. And Hector says, you see, lady, that kid's not going to have no damn dog. He's going to eat that. They're going to eat that up at their house. This was about a week after the hurricane. I'm, I'm, just, a, I'm just an observer. I'm going like, What? And I'm looking at this girl, yeah. and she's their leader, and she absolutely was the most beautiful woman I think I ever saw in my life. And she, her hair was perfectly combed. We're all covered in mud and crap. She's sitting there in the back of this vehicle with three or four guys and a, and a couple of policemen with them to protect their lives. And uh, I'm watching all this. So finally, I, at night at the hotel, I looked her up. You know, I said, uh, how was your day today? And she said, oh, we had a lot of work. And and I said, what do you do? Who are you? And she told me her name, and I wrote it down, but I've long since lost it. She said, I am a professional, like a Steve Irwin. And she said, we have, a, we have a television show on the History Channel or on the Animal Channel. You can see it. And I'm going like, really? And she said, yeah, my husband and I do this. And I'm thinking, well, right, okay, you know, fine. I just walked away. But it was like three years later that I'm watching this one of these animal channels. And there she is with her husband, and they're pulling out, um, not bo- not boa constrictors, but anacondas. They're mm. finding anacondas in really shallow water, and okay. they're capturing anacondas, and they're, they're, I guess, tagging them. And these things will eat you, and they're out there catching these anacondas. And the reason I, I knew it was her, because I saw her, I said, that's that same beautiful girl. She had the long blonde hair, and she was, wow, you know, she could fill out a set of fatigues pretty damn good. And I'm going like, that is the wildest, craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. But that was during the, you know, the times when things were crazy. Kicking out beans and rice out of an airplane, we were absolutely, you know, I remember a military guy came up to us and he said, are you, do you where's your authorized flight plan to fly? And he says, you know, we don't need no stinking flight plan. 
we're from Honduras. We know where we're going. And the military guys are going like, one of the, the sergeant asked his like lieutenant said, "Can he? Can they do that?" And he said, "Well, it's their country. I guess they can." But he, but the you know the, the the U.S. military guy said, "You need to coordinate with us." And I said, "Absolutely, sir. No problem." And Mejia, the pilot, saying, "Tell him to kiss our butts, man. We don't have to listen to them." Uh, Mejia, they're helping your people. Well, that's good. But I fly my own damn airplane where I want to fly it. And this is the same guy we're flying out of, of Key West one time. And we start out across the, the uh, of course, the ocean. We fly just north of Cuba and then cut over the, you know, the, uh, the peninsula there in Mexico and shoot down below it and go straight into uh, to Honduras. And it's about a four-hour flight because we're only doing 200 miles an hour. And this thing has these giant radial engines on it. And I'm looking out, the, you know, the, the engines, and I'm sitting, I always sit up in the front with the guys <clears throat> At first, they didn't want to take me, but I had to prove I had a commercial pilot's license, which I do. But I certainly wasn't qualified to fly the plane. But okay, you got a license, you can go with us. And I, I went with every load we took to be careful, you know, make sure it went where it was supposed to go. And I'm looking at this plane, and I, I remember earlier I was walking around below the plane, and oil's dripping down out of the engines. I said, Mahia, you've got an oil leak. He says, Of course, I got an oil leak. This is a you know Convair 440; they leak all the time. I said. I said, I mean, I, the, you had, they had to put buckets out underneath the engine. I said, this is really a lot of oil. And so he showed me the engines had 25-gallon uh, oil tanks because these engines throw a lot of oil. They're just dirty, dirty, polluted, ugly old engines, but they're very powerful. And so we take off across the ocean. Now we're about two hours into this four-hour flight. And suddenly I feel the plane swerve and the right engine quits. It just quits. So he feathers the prop and he says, to me, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We're okay. We can fly on one engine. This plane will fly forever on one engine. <laughs> like, okay. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I knew that. But he didn't even bat an eye. And so we're going along and, and, and he said to me, looked over his shoulder and said, hey, Gringo, you know what happens if the other engine quits? I said, I think I do. What will happen? I said, we'll crash. He said, no, no, no. The other engine will take us directly to the scene of the crash. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just listening to this going like, really? And they were all characters. I mean, you know, everybody wanted to drink rum the minute they got on the ground. And, you yeah. know, they had to get the plane unloaded. And But these were the people that were getting things done. They were the ones actually making it happen. Did you ever have one of them days? Then nothing ever goes right. And your old lady, she's a fussing. Now she was fussing about last night. And you get down to the bathroom and you sit upon that throne. And you know when all your business is done, the toilet paper's gone. It's a good day <laughs> to whoop somebody's ass. It's a bad day. So you better not even ask, you might get cold caught. If you cross my path, it's a good day for me to whoop somebody's ass. Ooh.